0: So we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, if you'll turn there. It is so amazing that God does have a plan. You guys, you get excited about your plans. You have a plan for a holiday. You have a plan. I mean, honestly, some plans are not the most exciting, right? You plan to have a meeting, and you know it's going to be long or difficult. It may not be the greatest plan, but there's plans that you make that you're excited about, and you look forward to, and you say, I can't wait for this. This is going to be great. Uh do we have that sort of expectancy when it comes to God's plan for you? Like, God has a plan for you. The way that He wants to use you, the place that He's going to lead you, we can be really excited about that, and we should be. But often, in the busyness of our own plans, we can miss that. Bless, can you? We just got a little ring. Thanks. We have the Word of God that gives us His plan for our life. We can learn of Him, and it's just so awesome that we can know of His kindness, but also experience it. The Bible is much more than God's plan, though God's plans contain it. It's more than history. There's a lot of history accurately represented in Scripture. It's more than poetry or songs, though, of course, those are there too. But it's a thorough revelation of the living God. It's who God is and how we relate to Him and how we can become one with him through faith in Jesus. And it's marvelous to be part of his plans. It's so awesome that you don't have to go across the world to be a witness for Jesus Christ. We can be a witness right where we are. You think about Paul and Barnabas, how God had a plan for them, and he sent them out to go into the Gentile world to bring the gospel to the nations. And uh, God used them and God wants to use you as well and uh, the way to do that is not when you go overseas because if we're not good witnesses for him here what makes us think we could be a good witness elsewhere be a witness where God has you around the people closest to you and then be amazed at how he uses you I think it's important for us in making disciples of Jesus that we don't just think of making disciples as bringing people who don't know about God to people who are converted to faith in Christ. Don't believers need uh, exhortation as much as the unbeliever? Don't we need to be reminded of the goodness of God and his comfort in the middle, midst of trials? Because it's not just the world that needs God's comfort. I need God's comfort too. And we need the scriptures as much as the, the lost world needs the scriptures. And this faith, as Mark spoke about last week, it should affect our everyday activities, our experiences. So we'll start Acts thirteen, fourteen. May we lay these words to heart. Speaking of Paul and Barnabas, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. The Holy Spirit had separated Paul and Barnabas to the work to which he had called them. It said they had left Antioch, and they went, uh, that would be, I guess, west, towards Cyprus. Uh, They had that interaction with Elymas, the sorcerer, and Sergius Paulus in Paphos, and then they went to Perga, and then to Antioch in Asia Minor. So they went north at that point, located in modern-day Turkey. And as was their custom, they went into the, the synagogue uh, to have fellowship with the Jews and to attend that service there. And it was customary, and I don't know if you guys have been to synagogue, but there would be a hymn sung, uh, prayers read, there would be readings both from the law and from the prophets on every Sabbath. And uh, the basic format has continued in synagogues to this day. It seems that Paul and Barnabas were either singled out by the authorities or the rulers of the synagogue because maybe they had introduced themselves. Or, you know, if you can tell that someone loves the Lord, they they understand the scriptures, they're excited. I don't know how how they were called upon, but it said kind of with a nod to them, hey, if you have anything to say to edify or exhort the people, go ahead and share so they get this opportunity exhortation it means to implore to comfort to strongly urge to cease doing evil and do what's good so that's what an exhortation is and as we gather together as a church it's good that we exhort one another we have time for exhortation Uh, paul he would write to timothy to give special attention to reading the reading of the scriptures exhortation and teaching so not just to read it to understand it but actually to do it to, ha- to be to be told what's right and i think in a world that's very subjective it may actually be uh, cold water splashed on your face it's like whoa a bit of a shock when you're actually exhorted um about what's wrong but also what's right he would write in romans twelve 6, 8 Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And it's more than just a spiritual gift. They're like, well, I'm an exhorter. That's what I do. Well, good, but we should also be uh, faithful followers of Jesus, obedient ourselves. I believe the church needs exhortation as much as the world needs evangelists. We need that. We need to be exhorted. We need to be compelled by our brothers and sisters who say, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. Don't copy me. Don't try to be me or be like me. But let's follow Christ together in obedience to his word. Let's be challenged by what he tells us. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13, it's a warning against unbelief, but he says, exhort each other daily, lest your hearts be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If we're not getting exhortation daily, it's possible that we could become quite insular in our thinking and not even realize that how we're living is unrighteous or in a way that doesn't please God. So this exhortation is, it keeps us from hardness of heart. It keeps us from slipping into unbelief, where if we're just talking with ourselves and we're not taking things to the Lord, we don't have input from other brothers and sisters who say, hey, it really sounds like you're worrying about this, are you? Well, of course, I'm not worried, you know, because we know we're not supposed to worry, but let's be honest with each other and ourselves. Yes, you know what? I am totally worried right now. It's good for us to come to that conclusion so that we can say, you know, I need to be casting my cares on the Lord. So I need to stop worrying, admit that I've done wrong, that's repentance, and then choosing to trust the Lord with it, and doing my part in obeying him. So the knowledge of Scripture alone is not enough to keep you with a soft heart if he's going to say, exhort each other daily lest you be hardened. So we need each other. We need exhortation. And so it may be for you to receive a word of exhortation, or for you to give a word of exhortation. Which do you find easier to do? Which do you like doing, maybe? You love exhorting people. Guys, do the right thing. You know, knock it off. You know, it may be easier to do that. I think if you're walking in the Spirit, you actually will be reluctant to kind of jump into that. But when someone says it to you, who is this guy? What gives him the right to say that to me? Right? It may not be easy for us to receive that so we need it both ways both to receive that word and to share that word which takes boldness and obedience to the lord so as individual members of the body of christ we're called to exhort one another and to receive that exhortation and uh do you see do you see exhortation as, as something that's a bit annoying or something that you really need like as necessary as food drink and air or coffee do you need Exhortation, Like, you need it. You need it to function. We should be in that state. God forbid we should need anything more than what God says we need. Acts 13, verse 16. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted army brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Paul addressed the people. He stands up and he motions with his hand and he says, men of Israel. And for him, Jews were his brethren according to the flesh. He was a Jew, raised among the Jews. And this shows us that uh, we need to be witnesses among our own people, You know, among our families, our friends, our co-workers, those close to us. And similar to Stephen's address to the Sanhedrin, he begins by starting at the beginning of the Jewish history. He starts with God, and that's always a good thing, whether if you're going to uh, share the gospel to someone who doesn't know Christ or if you're going to uh, exhort a believer. Start with God and what he said, what he's done, and then come to the point of what he's telling you. So you're setting the, the basis for your statement. It's not just, I feel this. He's like, look, let's look back at the history and see what God has done. And he doesn't only appeal to the Jews, but he acknowledges you who fear God. So it was customary for non-Jews to go to synagogue, and they were welcomed as long as they, uh, I guess, respected that time and observed their uh, etiquette. You know, the men would would cover at certain times and go in, and the women and men would sit in separate areas. And so as long as you observe their basic rules everything was great you were welcome to be there so with an aim appointed to christ he begins at the beginning with god and he says god chose israel brought israel out of slavery he extended grace to them they were slaves but he called them to be his people and for 40 years he he had to deal with their ways what were their ways unbelief stubbornness idolatry fornication lust now all these things that 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 was them. That's what they did. Uh, but according to his promise, he brought them into the land of Canaan, and he gave them that land as an inheritance. And for centuries, they were governed by a series of judges. This pattern we see in the book of Judges, where they would they would have problems because they had departed from God. They would cry out to God. God would send a judge or a deliverer to help them to lead them, and they'd have rest from their enemies. But then again, they would fall into idolatry and uh, begin to stray from God and then this is like rinse repeat over and over but ultimately they said we want a king Samuel like everybody else like all the other nations we want to be like them we don't want God as our king we want to have a man who's our king and so God gave them Saul and Saul was a man head and shoulders above every other man in Israel he was quite a physical specimen and the people rejoiced Um, but it wasn't long until he showed his true colors that instead of being filled with the spirit, he was filled with self and he was filled with pride and God rejected him. He was removed as king. And in verse 22, he says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And we have there a very good uh, working definition of the man after God's own heart or the woman after God's heart. That's the one who does God's will. Remember, when Jesus came, he always did the will of the Father. And so we, too, are to seek to do God's will and then to put it into practice. And that's a heart that's after his. David was not perfect. It was not the goodness of his heart that he followed God because none of us have a good heart. Um, But he had a heart that desired to do God's will. When he was rebuked, he responded to it. When his sin was pointed out, he repented of it. And he chose not to do that anymore. And he sought to, to please God with his decisions. He's like, you know, how can I do something great for God? This is the way he's thinking. You know, when uh, there's that Philistine who's defying the armies of the living God, he's like, man, someone's got to stand up for God and speak the truth. You know, who's going to let this, this Philistine say such things against God? And he chose to act on that. And the same thing, he wanted to do something. He's like, I'm living in this awesome house. I'm living, God brought me out of the sheepfold, and now I'm living in a palace, but the ark of God, it's in a tent. And that's not right. Something, God should have a great place for his presence to dwell. And so he sought to build God a house. But God said, I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to give you an everlasting house. Which is cool. We'll get into that. Verse 23. Speaking of David, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, To you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. They read the scriptures every week. Every Sabbath they read about the prophets who spoke of Christ, but they didn't recognize Christ when he came. And they condemned him. They fulfilled the very scripture that they didn't understand, the one that they could recite to you. And if you had like a game and said, who said this prophecy? They could tell you who said it. But they didn't recognize Jesus when he came. But this fulfilled the prophecies. So God had said to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And he fulfilled that through the person of Jesus Christ, who is of David's line. Jesus Christ is the son of David, but he is also the son of God. So he is of David's line, but he is also divine. He is God made flesh who dwelt among us. Jesus is a savior first for Israel, but whoever will repent and trust in him. Paul speaks of John the Baptist. He came as a forerunner before Christ. He was the voice crying in the wilderness spoken of, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1. He prepared the way for Jesus with baptism to repentance. So he would get together, he would preach to the people and tell them to repent. He's out in the wilderness and people flock to him to hear this guy who's eating locusts and uh, eating wild honey as his diet. And then he's preaching. And it seemed that people would have been very happy to have him as the Messiah. They're like, are you the Messiah? He had He had a bit of a genealogy there he's the son of a priest he was filled with the holy spirit from the womb the bible says he was a bright light like attracting people like moths to flame people just came to him but his purpose was not to glorify himself but to shine a spotlight on jesus christ the light of the world the one who would come to save And he said, "He's, you know, I'm not even worthy to, to loosen his sandal. And this is not speaking of the great humility of John, though he was a humble man, but the divinity and worthiness of Christ. I'm not worthy to touch him. You're, you're asking me if I'm the Messiah. No, he's here, and I'm unworthy to even be compared with him. So he just pointed to Jesus, the Messiah who God sent to save people from their sins. That song that we sang that said, you know, is your soul thirsty? And if we're filling ourselves and seeking to to satisfy our thirst with anything other than the living water, we will remain thirsty. We will remain empty. We will be dry. But Jesus Christ, he is the one who gives living water. The Holy Spirit that springs up within us. So he says, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of the salvation has been sent. The Jews had the privileged position to know God through his word. He gave the law to them. They could know what pleased God. God had sent prophets to them. They had synagogues established where the word of God was read. And yet despite all this access to God, They did not recognize Jesus when he came. And this fulfilled scripture. And we're going to see, as we go on, the word fulfilled over and over through this passage. Verse 28. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David therefore he also says in another psalm you will not allow your holy one to see corruption for david after he had served his own generation by the will of god fell asleep was buried with his fathers and saw corruption but he whom god raised up saw no corruption Now we don't have the time to visit all the scriptures that were fulfilled in that period when jesus was betrayed Died on the cross, his burial and resurrection. There were, there were like 25, at least 25 prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled in 24 hours when Jesus, that happened, when he was betrayed, crucified, and buried in a tomb. That's phenomenal. Things spoken thousand years previous, a thousand years prior to him going to the cross, and they were fulfilled. They reached a crescendo when he rose from the dead. Over and over in this passage, God, uh, the word is repeated by Paul, fulfilled. And that speaks of God's plans, his authority, and his foreknowledge, right? Because to fulfill something, that means that you know how it's going to end. And you know the way that we're going to achieve that end. And over and over, God fulfilled His promises. He made a promise and he fulfilled it. It's finished. Complete. It is so great that our God loves sinners he would send his own son to die for them. It's amazing. I mean, we avoid people that we have a minor disagreement with. They may have said something that irritated us and so we're like, okay, I've had enough of that guy for today and we avoid each other. Right? Just, Just because they said something or did something. But, Jesus came to people whom he knew would betray him and refuse him, reject him, and kill him. He came with that knowledge because he loved them and he loved you and he loves me. And so he came with that knowledge and his his plan for salvation, he had given them the covenant of law, which could not save. All it could do was show your faults. It could only condemn you. And then he created a new covenant through his own blood that we could be washed from our sins and rendered righteous before him. How many of us naturally fear rejection? Hmm. I'd say a lot of us, if not all. Well, Jesus came knowing even his closest friends would reject him. Friends. He still came. He still called. He still went through the whole process to the end. And he did it joyfully, because it was God's will that we would be saved and that he would be uh, risen from the grave, glorified. Now, there's a lot of uh, verses here, and we'll just briefly touch on them, uh, the things that God fulfilled. And so he's speaking to Jews, people who have a knowledge of the scriptures and the prophets, the Psalms, and he starts laying out things. Well, hey, this is what Jesus is who this verse is talking about here. So Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the word begotten we usually talk about as someone who's born, right? But uh, Paul relates this to Christ's resurrection. He was begotten as the first begotten from the dead. He was the first who raised to eternal life. Though dead, then he lives. He is the resurrection and the life. God said it, and then he did it. And that's something we can count on with God. The things he says he will do. Likely not in the way you think it should happen or when it should happen, but it will and it'll be better in the end. Uh, in Isaiah 55.3, he says, Incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. A covenant is an agreement. It's kind of like a contract. Can you have an agreement with someone who is dead? You know, someone's passed away, and I'm going to make an agreement with them to buy their automobile. No, it doesn't work that way. You can't make a deal with them because they can't make a deal, right? They're not conscious to make a deal with you. So therefore, there's no covenant, there's no agreement, but we can have a covenant, an everlasting covenant with God, because Jesus Christ is alive. He's the one whose blood was shed. He's alive, and he's eternal. And so his word is good forever. He can make good on his end of it. And he also will raise us to new life with him. That final verse that he quotes, it's in Psalm 16, 9 through 11. It says, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. Your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So he's saying, David isn't saying this about himself. Notice the personal pronouns. You will not leave my soul in Sheol. You will show me the path of life. He's saying, he's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the one who did not see corruption. David died and was buried and his tomb remained. Jesus, he died, but he rose from the dead and the tomb is empty. So he's saying, this is the Holy One. This is the Messiah. This is the one that was spoken about by David. And of David's line, this is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in whom we must trust. It says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We can have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore because of what God has accomplished for us. And that's delight. That's sweetness. Fulfillment speaks of purpose and design. I want you to turn with me to Genesis twenty-five, twenty-one, for an example that hopefully we can relate to our experiences. Now, I've never been pregnant, but some of you have. And I'm sure that you would say there were times where you romanticized what it would be like to have a child either childbirth, or you had an idea, but then you were up a lot, and it wasn't exactly what you thought it would be? Well, here we have a really interesting story about Isaac with his wife, Rebecca. Genesis twenty-five twenty-one. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and as Rebecca, his wife, conceived, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. For some time, Rebecca was unable to conceive, and Isaac pleaded with the Lord, and She did fall pregnant, and she likely had longed to be with child, and then when she was, it was not what she expected. She's like, if everything's okay, why do I feel like this? This is not normal. This is not right. Something is wrong. This is is her thinking at that time. I imagine she's sleeping, and her sleep is just, there's this violent contractions going on inside of her, and she's looking down and going, oh, is that a head? Well, then what's that? And what is going on here? So she does a wise thing. There were no sonograms, right? We might go get a checkup. No sonograms in those days, so she went to the Lord and said, God, what is going on? And God said, well, there's twins inside of you, and they're tussling together. She's like, "Oh good. I don't have an alien with um, you know, two heads and 4 feet and really pointy elbows uh, jamming me in the ribs and keeping me up at night." All right. There's a purpose in this. And he says, "Yes, these two, these two twins, they are two nations. And they're opposed to each other, and they're just like wrestling it out in there." Um, and then he told them what his plan was for them. And it says when her days were fulfilled, so God, he had this thing orchestrated from beginning to end. And let's not limit this to pregnancy in any way, but granted, there are things that we face in this life that are not what we expect to be. We expected a certain thing, and maybe we prayed for it, and God's answered our prayer, but we get in the middle of it and say, what is going on with this? This is not right. Something's quite wrong. This pain is not what I, ex- I expected. This uh, trouble... How could this be of God? And we wonder what is happening. But see, God has a plan. And just like he does not give birth pangs but not bring to the birth, he brings to the birth in his time when those days were fulfilled. And there's a season in your life right now that he's going to fulfill in his time. And your life, he has things along the way he's going to fulfill. So go to him and seek him and he will speak to you. And he won't... You know, he didn't give her much information there, but he gave her enough. And God will give you enough information, if you trust him, to keep pressing on and to trust that he will bring good out of it, despite the current discomfort. She would have been happy with one son, right? But God gave her two at once. She, she, wasn't, she didn't ask for that. She wasn't planning for that. But God had a plan, and he would see it fulfilled. And God, in the end, brought good out of her suffering. And you know, we all suffer in many ways, different ways. God will bring good out of that suffering. The Bible says that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. If you're in God, if Christ is in you, he will redeem your sorrows and your struggles with something beautiful that I can't even describe. It will have a lasting positive impact, not only for you, but for others, even as Jesus' death and his resurrection has blessed many nations. He's going to use you and even your trials and the heartaches that you have to minister his love and grace to others through you as you receive of that grace. Jesus said in John 16, 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. In the, in the, when the birth pangs hit, it's brutal. But when you see the the end result, the pain really fades in comparison to this... Beautiful thing that God has done. Jesus approached every day on earth knowing that his hour was coming, right? He had an hour, and it was an hour on Calvary where he would suffer. But he looked for the joy that was before him, the joy of redemption, the joy of salvation, and offering his love to others that he knew you and others would receive. And that that was, that was brought great joy to him say oh it's totally worth it it's worth it jesus moving on in that passage he says in john 16:33 these things i have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer i have overcome the world in jesus we have peace not in different circumstances it's in him we have peace and this is something we need to learn In this world, we will have tribulation. There will be pains and suffering. There will be disappointments. However, he says these things because he is overcome. And our hope is in him. So no matter what your situation or where you find yourself, know that God, he does have a plan that will be fulfilled in his time through your life. And it's a good one. He will fulfill your word, his word. Uh, even as he fulfilled the days of Rebecca's pregnancy. And hey, twins, just like God said. All right, back to Acts 13, verse 38. It says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. John, in chapter 1, it says, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law cannot save, it can only condemn. The law brings the knowledge of sin, just like when I look in the mirror and I say, wow, I need to shave. Um, The mirror, I can know that I need to shave, but I can't shave with the mirror. That would be really weird. I don't think it would work. No, it definitely wouldn't work. It can just show me the fact that I'm scruffy. It cannot shave my face. And that's what the law was. It showed people how sinful they were, how they're so unlike God in every way that they didn't do the things God said to do and they refused to do the things God told them to do. Just in every way, they failed. 600 plus commands and they, every single one of them has been broken countless times. Through Jesus, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. It's like a full pardon. It's more than not guilty. You guys know when you come before a court and you're declared not guilty, there's still a little bit of, hm, mm, but he could have done it, right? He's just not guilty. The, the law wasn't able to prove that he did it. So there's a little bit of a cloud over you to some extent, right? Because you're like, oh, he had good lawyers. Um, there's ways to weasel out of a c- condemnation. However when it comes to christ he pardons us it's like a complete expunging of our guilt so there's no record of it and we were actually guilty so it's not that we were not guilty no we were dead guilty completely guilty red-handed no defense and yet we've been rendered innocent as if we've never sinned because of the grace of god and because his blood has washed us from sin. We just trusted in him. That's all we've done. We couldn't earn this salvation. We couldn't earn this forgiveness. But he's saying, because i loved you, I took your punishment on the cross, and I am risen, showing my power to do it. And so now you are free from the guilt and condemnation of sin. All the law that had condemned you, you are now not just not guilty, but you are righteous. So that's taking it even further. So going from guilty, To not just off the hook, but perfectly righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. Out of no goodness of your own, just of the goodness of God. And that's why God's grace is so phenomenal, that he would suffer for me. I deserved punishment, but he chose to take it upon himself. The only ones justified by the law are those who keep it perfectly. It says in Romans 2.13. But righteousness comes through faith in Jesus, through trusting him. Now, Paul, he gives a, a warning to his hearers in Habakkuk 1.5. It says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you should not believe, though it were told you. Now, Habakkuk, his story is he was a prophet uh, shortly before Jerusalem fell and the temple was razed to the ground. By the Babylonians, which shocked God's people. So he says, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. So Habakkuk, in this book, he was really questioning God, like saying, God, why aren't you answering our prayers? We're devout. We're following you. We trust you. You've said that if we pray to you, you'll deliver us from our enemies. But the Syrians, the Babylonians, have come and they have pillaged and they have raped and they have destroyed this, this, ta- this nation. And we're all huddled together in Jerusalem. Why don't you answer? And God says, check out what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe it, even if I told you. Because he would use Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as his instrument of justice to destroy his people and to bring them into captivity for 70 years. This was just, they they wouldn't receive that. They're like, no way we have the temple the temple of the lord we have his presence here this is where he's put his everlasting name and that you're just going you're going to have the heathen destroy us and god's like yep it's exactly what i'm going to do now paul he turns it around he says beware listeners today that in rejecting christ even as your forefathers rejected Right. So the, their forefathers rejected the prophecies that were given by Habakkuk and others. Who said, the Babylonians are coming. We're going to go into captivity. And they're like, no, we're not. Where should we go? Just don't go to, he said, whatever you tell us, we'll do. Don't go to Egypt. Hey, that's exactly where we're going. Don't tell us what to do. And so they go to Egypt, even if, even after he said that whatever God said they would do. Um, so he says, beware and, you know, that if you reject Jesus, it's death. There's life in Christ, but if you reject him, it means death for eternity. Cut off from God. So beware, people. Beware, he was telling them. There's no salvation in the law. There's no deliverance by your own efforts. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't reject him like your forefathers rejected the prophets that you read every, every Sabbath. The assembly, they break for the day the Gentiles approach Paul and Barnabas and it says they begged those words could be preached again the next week. Oh man, we want to hear that again. Can't get enough of that. They were hungry for the gospel. They just wanted to hear it again. They wanted to to revel in the grand acceptance that God had given through Jesus. Now a follower of Christ may God forbid the gospel should ever be seen as like boring or rudimentary or so fundamental that we actually move on from it in our Christian experience that the gospel could be compared to like the starting blocks of the race. You know, they're in the starting blocks and it's something to push off on and to begin, but then it's quickly moved out of the way so that uh, you won't trip on it on your next lap. That's not how we should view the gospel. It's terrible theology and awful practice. Because the more we grow in the gospel, the more we understand how good God is, how wicked and undeserving we are, and the grace that he has poured out on us. It's, it's almost like the lines of the track, you know, on the oval. It shows us how to live because we say, God has been gracious to me. So I'm going to be gracious to them. God has forgiven me of all my sin. I can forgive them because they hurt my feelings. The gospel, it's the, it's, God will use it to guide and direct us. When we look to Jesus, how he's treated us. Totally undeserving of his favor. And so then we stop forcing others to, you know, you need to pay. You got to pay for what you did. You say, well, has God made me? pay for what I've done yeah there's consequences for sin but what do we know of God's grace are we living it out I used to compete in cross country in high school and one time the course was not clearly marked it used to be we it was like a pretty easy to navigate path but for whatever reason they changed the track and they did a really bad job of it and it ended up that our team which was far superior to the other team we, we lost badly. And some of the boys, they were running like an, a mile and a half extra to try to make up the time. And we still almost won. Like it was that, it was that big of a blunder where we're, we are going in like, oh man, we got this. And then we lost because they took a wrong turn and had to double back and do everything again. You know, when we lose sight of the gospel, we're ultimately going to wander from the right way of how to how to draw near to God in humility and how we are humble before our brothers and sisters and those who don't know Christ. Realizing that Jesus came from heaven to come to us and how God's called us to go to them. And not just to share his love with people um, outside through sharing the gospel, but exhorting one another inside the church. And we'd say, we need this. We need each other. We need the truth of the scriptures to be imprinted on us so that we can grow I like that it says they spoke to them and persuaded them to continue in the grace of God some of the people hated what Paul said he gave a word of exhortation some people were like we're out of here that was terrible that was awful I can't believe those guys said that what audacity In the synagogue to say such things. Heresy. You know, they're, they're, they're just angry about and offended about what was said. But there are others that are like, please tell us that. We want to hear it again. Want to hear about this. Many believed. And it says that the receptive people they spoke to and persuaded them. This is to convince them to continue in the grace of God. Because once we receive the gospel, we come to Jesus and trust in Him. Our natural inclination is to swing to lib- to uh, legalism where we begin to uh, put rules and boundaries on ourselves and others to say well this is how we know we're righteous is because you do certain things and then the the other side is you become totally liberal and you say well god's forgiven me of everything so it doesn't matter how i live i can live however i want i can if i sin i'll just ask for forgiveness and it's just open season for sin but see god didn't save us so we'd keep sinning He's forgiven us by his own blood so that we can be empowered through his spirit to live righteously and to please him in everything we do. We can be impatient towards others when God's been very patient with us. Hasn't he been patient? Hasn't he shown long-suffering towards us? Hasn't he been gracious and faithful? All those things that we admire about him, he wants to work in your life and through you to others. So I exhort you, brothers and sisters, continue in the grace of God. If you could turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18, we'll close with this passage. The gospel is simple to understand, but we will be learning to live out the implications of the gospel all our days. I don't believe during our entire life, regardless of our effort, that we could perfectly live up to the standard of the gospel while we're in this body, on this planet, until Jesus comes back or we are uh, raised with him glorified. We still have a lot to learn when it comes to the gospel. And I don't mean just understanding it theologically, but actually what it looks like in practice. You look at how Jesus spoke, you look at the things that he did, It's like no one else in history because grace is a foreign commodity in this world. It's a foreign even in concept. They're like, huh? That doesn't make any sense at all. Grace. 2 Peter 3, 14. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, but let's seek to grow in grace, right? Grow in grace. Keep maturing in our grace and knowledge. And we grow in grace, not just by understanding it more, but by giving grace to others. It's kind of like your faith Won't grow until you obey. If you want your faith to grow, well, then you need to obey God. And you will begin to grow. Your faith will grow. And if you want to grow in grace, we have to extend grace. And this involves faith. You have to trust God to give grace, don't you? Because we want people to get it. We want to make sure that they get it. And like, we want them to make... I want you to know that you've done the wrong thing. Right? And I'm thinking about, even with my kids, I want to make sure this message gets across. So I'm going to devise some way to, to make it stick. Like you're going to get this lesson, whether I have to kill you along the way or not. But see, God wants me to die. He wants me to die. He wants me to die to my flesh and to myself, and to my own way of thinking, my own way of reacting, and instead to trust him as i obey him and i do have discipline and he wants to discipline me so god he's got it all going on he's so wise and brilliant in how his designs and he will bring it to a fulfillment let's trust him and grow in grace and let's continue in grace not wavering not falling into sin but continue to uphold god's righteousness we don't deserve to live for a day but jesus died for us so we could live with him forever the guilty ones the ones who don't deserve him let's pray lord thank you that you know what we need and you know how to change us thank you for the power of the holy spirit who works within us thank you that uh you are patient with us and may we uh show your patience to others you have loved us lord with an everlasting love a sacrificial love uh, may we love others in that way please lord we we can't do this on our own we are not sufficient in ourselves to do the first things you tell us to, but by your grace, Lord, uh, empower us by your Spirit to walk in the way that pleases you and to continue in grace. In those words of exhortation, Lord, I pray that we would be exhorted this morning to continue in your grace and that we would recognize the implications of the gospel in our everyday choices and the way we speak to others, the way we deal in with offense or when we've done the wrong thing lord place in us a heart to do your will and a humility to confess our sin before you and before those we offend that we would live in the way that pleases you and we could say that i've done god's will but it's not me doing it it's god doing it through me lord we just want to praise you we want to thank you for all the awesome things you've done for the way that you uh, used Paul and Barnabas and how you've used many of the brothers and sisters here to encourage and exhort us and I pray we would join together in you uh, to rejoice in the gospel and just say Lord tell me again how much you love me tell me again how much you've forgiven me tell me again the great plans that you have for me because you are awesome and we love you in Jesus name amen